Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. We're still dealing with the pandemic, so for the time being, we'll have to keep connected virtually, even as we maintain our distance. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library for their collaboration in our second virtual season. Everything's available online at writersfestival.org, so all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is visit us and click play. As always, I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. It's always a good idea to buy books, and of course, you can't go wrong supporting local independent booksellers. Today, we're going to spend time with two remarkable writers, both with acclaimed new novels, Taking the Country by Storm. Our host, Amanda Leduc, and her guest, J.L. Richardson, work together at the Festival of Literary Diversity. This year, their festival will be running online from May 1 to 15, and it promises to be another great edition of The Fold. So do visit them online at thefoldcanada.org and find out how to register and how to support them. Amanda Leduc's stunning novel, The Centaur's Wife, is out now, and I can enthusiastically recommend it one of my favorite reads of the year so far. Last year, she published a brilliant nonfiction book, Disfigured, on fairy tales, disability, and making space, where she answers the question, fairy tales shape how we see the world, so what happens when you identify more with the beast than beauty? First, we'll get a short taste of the prose, then Amanda will introduce us to JL and her best-selling and acclaimed new novel, Gutter Child. Gutter Child by J.L. Richardson. Chapter 1. The driver looks in my direction, full of worry. Her lips are red, glossy, and pouted, and there's a crease in her forehead like she's the one with problems, not me. I stare out the window, wishing I could go back and put my old life back together, which is impossible, I know. So here I am instead, hours away from the only home I've ever known and driving up a long gravel road through a tunnel of trees with branches that reach down like fingers, hungry for touch. This is Livingstone Academy, Miss Femia says, as we pull up to a grand white house with black shutters and a door that's green like a swamp. The car slows to a stop under a droopy willow, and I step out in what feels like a whole different world. I take one deep breath and close my eyes, and when I open them again, Miss Femia is standing in front of me with her tight bun and waxy mouth. She takes my hands in hers, rubbing my scar with her thumb, the hideous X on the back of my right hand that's ugly and raw. She sighs, and I wonder if it's sadness in her eyes because it's hard to tell with mainlanders. Pity looks very much the same. I know this wasn't the plan, she says, but let's make the most of it, hey? Her voice is high and hopeful, and I hate the way it sounds, like forgetting the life I had is my best option like that's even possible. I really think you might like it here. I think your mother would have really liked this place, she says. I want to tell her that what mother would probably like is to be living instead of dead, to be back home with me instead of wherever it is she is now. But Miss Femia doesn't have children, and people without children always share silly bits of wisdom, like it will all go to waste if they don't. Yes, let's make the most of it, I say, turning up the corners of my mouth as high as I can manage which isn't much. You can do this, Elamina, she says, wrapping her fingers around the doorknob, holding the swamp-colored door with her back. You can find happiness here. 
but happiness isn't something a kid like me can afford to hold out for. Hi everyone, thank you so much for joining me today. My name is Amanda LaDuke and I am so pleased and thrilled to welcome the one and only J.L. Richardson to the podcast today. J.L. Richardson is the Artistic Director of the Festival of Literary Diversity, the books columnist on CBC Radio's Q, and an outspoken advocate on issues of diversity. She is the author of The Stone Thrower, A Daughter's Lesson, A Father's Life, which was made into a children's book by Groundwood Books. She holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Guelph and lives in Brampton, Ontario. And she is the author of the newly released book, which we will get to talk about today, Gutter Child. Thank you so much for being here, JL. It is a pleasure to speak with you in this format. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right into the nitty gritty. Um, mm. I know most people have probably heard you talk about Gutter Child uh, at some point over the last couple of weeks, so they probably know a little bit about the book, but on the off chance that there are people who are listening who maybe don't know as much about it, I wondered if we could start with you just talking a little bit about the genesis for Gutter Child, which is your first novel. What sparked the idea for the book and what sorts of things were you trying to explore in the writing of it? Yes. Um, so Gutter Child is my debut novel. And uh, so in that regard, but it's not my first book. Uh, it's came after writing The Stone Thrower, which was a memoir about my father's life. And he grew up in the 60s in um, the segregated projects in Southern Ohio. And while we were working on that book and, and recording a documentary for it, we had traveled down to Portsmouth, Ohio and gone to the actual neighborhood where he grew up for the first time. Um, I was in my late 20s and I remember walking up to this one townhouse. He lived in a townhouse complex and there was a group of young men about my age sitting out on the porch. And the one man was like, hey, Chuck, you know, you know, my mom and, and was just sort of shouting with him about that. And um, I was watching them talk and watching this man and thinking, we're the same age and he's in the same place where my dad grew up and I've spent my entire life living, you know, a whole different way. Um, and I mean, you know, a whole different country, but also financially, I, I grew up quite, quite uh, privileged, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I just thought, how, how had he done this? And that was sort of my first question. And that's what I was exploring in Stone, Stone Thrower, of course. But then I was also posed by the flip question, which is, you know, what had happened to this young man's mother? Um, mm -hmm. What had sort of uh, happened in her life that she was still in these kinds of circumstances. And it began this question about systems and about the ways that systems in particular fail women and make uh, greater challenges for women. And I, there was another instance where we were watching the Trayvon Martin case with my dad and, and um, George Zimmerman got off for shooting him was, um, was not convicted. And my dad was like, of course he got off. You know, the laws were built to protect someone like George Zimmerman. They weren't built to protect someone like Trayvon Martin. And suddenly I started to think about all of the systems that I'm a part of, you know, education system, um, the political system in particular was fresh on my mind. And I was thinking about how these systems were built by white men, uh, white cisgender men, and <laughs> how how they were, were made to sort of protect them. And so everything that happens continues to protect them and the laws change to continue to protect them and only change um, 
and, and are so difficult to change for everybody else. So difficult for like black folks to get the vote and then not only to get the vote, but actually have actual equal access to voting is still a challenge. Mm-hmm. And so I've just been really, um, I was really pressed by that idea of like growing up and in a system like that. And so gutter child is me trying to build a system that, right. uh, plays that out because I wanted to see what happens to characters that live in those circumstances. What kinds of choices do they make? When do they learn they're in a system that fails them? And and how do they navigate their way out? What, what do we do about it? And these were kind of the things that were on my mind. Mm, it's so well done. And like, obviously, <laughs> I, I work with you and, you know, we are, we are dear, dear friends. Um, and I knew going into it that I was going to love the novel. And I did. And I just it's just so elegantly done the way that it constructs this system through which Elamina, the main character, is, is moving through. And there's one point in particular, I won't spoil it for people who haven't yet read the book, where um, we sort of, Elamina's in this position where all of a sudden you can see the gears grinding in predictable mm-hmm. ways that will force her down a very particular path. Mm-hmm. And the bottom of my stomach dropped out when I was reading it. And it was like, oh yes, this is what's going to happen now because the book has done all this work, right? In building this world and building this very particular system that advantages some people and disadvantages other people in very particular ways. Mm-hmm. And there's something that, you know, I think I mean, I think a lot about this in terms of fairy tales, right? The way that we in Western society in particular are sort of predisposed to the happy ending. Mm. And the book Gutter Child is not without hope, but, you know, there is in that focus on systems and the way that systems push people to very particular ends. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a certain futility of the individual railing against the system, Um, it, it kind of operates on its its own path in that way, because I think it, it definitely pushes against that idea that, you know, there is a happy ending and there is, you know, the, the triumphant narrator, the sort yeah. of savior character who comes in and saves everyone. And the book really pushes against that. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about this sort of per- pervasive sense of hopelessness that permeates a lot of Elamina's situation, right? She's sort of a character who's kind of at the mercy of a bunch of forces that are outside of her control. And yes, she wants things to change and she does, you know, make some actions toward change, but she also doesn't um, do other things, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because she can't, because Mm -hmm. the way that the system is built. And I'm I'm curious, did you encounter pushback from people when you were writing that narrative and sort and looking at edits and, and, you know, trying to put the book in its final form? Yeah, I mean, the question of hopelessness and hope and hopefulness has been a big, uh, a big thing for me writing it, for my editor weighing in on it, and and also to giving it to readers. I mean, I think I always want to say to people, I I wish, I wish on some days that I was a writer of happier stories, <laughs> funnier <laughs> stories, lighter stories. You know, I wish that was my thing. Um, but I I. I loved um, thinking about this system and trying to unpack the system. Mm-hmm. And, and also, you know, when you make a dystopia and you create your own world and your own system, of course, there are parallels that you can point to. But I didn't quite realize like how hard it is to unpack a system and to make your way out of a system until I created one myself and threw some characters in. Um, mm-hmm. And so 
hopelessness and hopefulness became a really big problem for me uh, as I moved into the later stages of the book. And um, keep in mind, I wanted it to be a realistic dystopia, if that makes sense. You know, I wasn't trying to make it like, you know, um, goblins come in or fairies come in and save the day. Like I was really trying to think of like a realistic plot line that was going to work. And so um, what was challenging for me is that, you know, one of the things I saw happening to the characters in the story is when I saw gaps in the system, things that hadn't quite been addressed. I remember my, my editor would be like, well, what happens if this happens? What happens if this happens? Like, what's the, and you realize, oh, if that happens, I can make a new rule that this would happen. Mm-hmm. And if that yeah. happens, I can make a new, and the new rules were very easy to come up with and explain and unpack. But what was not ever easy was how to tear it down. And the the demonstration for me in that was really troubling because I started to look at, um, you know, I was I was finishing up the book April June of 2020 when you know protests were going all over going mm-hmm. on all over the country and all over the world and I just saw this real for me a kind of hopelessness that I was also writing in where it was like you could see how the law. And the government was adapting and adjusting to just continue to make it worse. And no matter what people doing, it wasn't really changing things. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, that for me was hard because I started to face like a legitimate kind of hopelessness in the world. And I think what I've come to terms with and what I think I tried to do in the novel is I tried to... um, I started to realize that people, I have hope in people. I don't have hope Mm -hmm. in systems. I don't actually, (laughs) I tell people like, just so you know, I don't actually believe at this point that systems can be torn down, that they can Mm -hmm. actually be adjusted or adapted to better suit the people that they've neglected for a long time. I don't don't think at this point that that can happen. And, but I, what I do believe is I do believe individuals can change. And I do believe that individuals can make um, small acts of protest, small moments of activism in their life that change, you know, their lives and their families' lives and their circumstances. I've seen that kind of hopefulness happen. And Mm -hmm. so I've been trying, and I think in the book between the characters, I think I tried to find moments of hopefulness between them and between the community of Soci people in particular. Um, I tried to find moments where together they found glimmers of hope and together they were able to do hopeful things. Um, Mm But um, I, I didn't ever figure out how to tear down a system. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> Spoiler <it's>, alert. <laughs> <laughs> it's a question for the ages, right? Because yeah. I, think, I think if anyone had found out how to tear down systems, we'd be living in an entirely different world, right? Yeah. And we'd be talking about and writing about very different things. Um, and I think there is, there's definitely you know, throughout the book, there are absolutely those moments of individual connection and those moments, those kind of like tiny little moments of individual protest, which Mm -hmm. are so important and go such a long way to fleshing out the characters. I mean, you've got such a wonderful slate of characters in the book. You've got Elhimina, you've got, you know, her foster mother who raised her as a child. And then you've got Ida, who is this character at, um, at the the sort of um, the school that, mm-hmm. that she's at and then characters that she interacts with in what's known as the gutter in the, mm-hmm. the world of the novel. And they all, they're all drawn so well 
in light of the system in which they are existing. And, you know, their individual sort of triumphs and struggles and, and trying toward things are just so well done. Mm. It's, again, it's very, very elegant. And I think it's very true to the way that people operate now, right? And that sense of time, right, as being a system in and of itself that sort of presses down upon people and, and looking at revolution. There are definitely nods to revolution in the novel, right? Um, especially toward the end when you're sort of getting the sense of uh, people in the gutter kind of coming together and really trying to agitate for change, but also the sense of, you know, these kinds of things do take time. Mm. And what happens in the midst of time, right? People continue to live their lives and they continue to do small acts of protest and not. And one of the things that was really interesting for me within that was this idea of how the novel explores layers of privilege mm. and the way that we move within privilege and outside of privilege as a way of self-preservation, right? Elamina is a character who is both privileged and also not within the different worlds of the novel. And she struggles with reconciling and recognizing her own privilege and oppression as they coexist together. Mm. How did that feel for you as the author to see readers, once the book was out in the world, reckoning themselves with Elamina's approach to these things in the book, right? Because I think you know, from what I could see of some of the responses to the book, there were some people that struggled with this sense of, you know, Elamina maybe not being as active as they, mm. they wanted her to be, but then also, you know, not recognizing within that, that it's again, a novel about systems, right? It's not about how people necessarily overcome individually the system. Mm. It's about how systems take that power of individually overcoming it away. Mm. Yeah, well, I think, you know, <clears throat> The character who, um, I, it's interesting when people have different perspectives on Elamina. I think some people elevate her and make her this like super heroine who's done like all these amazing things. And, and, and I'm kind of like, what, what did she do? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I see that. Um, for me, um, Elamina was uh, a very um, simple uh, sometimes confused character. Um, but I will say one thing is true for me. I think every character in the book at some point, especially I would say the Soci characters, every single one, I think you look at their decisions and you question them at some point and you also cheer for them at some points. I mm -hmm. think with all of the Soci characters at one moment or another, you're either saying, yes, like way to go. I love that. And other times you're like, no, don't do that. <laughs> um, and that was kind of my goal with, with them is to make them that kind of multidimensional character who you're both like really happy with the decisions they're making. And then also like, but why? But also at the same time, understanding why hopefully. Um, right. And I, I think that's really important because I think that um, Black stories can often be like superhero stories or, or stories of tragedy. They can kind of be on one end of that very large spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I don't really like either. I really like my characters messy in the middle um, where, where they're making good decisions, but they're also compromising. Because I think in reality, that's kind of what we do every day. I think, you know, if you're a person of privilege, do you fight for justice every day? Is that the story of your life? 
No, probably not. And so for large portions of your life or your day, you're making compromises. You're choosing to ignore injustice in order to do something else that may long-term be beneficial for you, for others. But, you know, you do those compromises every single day. Um, And I wanted the characters to have those same things. I didn't want people, you know, ideally, I'd like people to be very confused about who to cheer (laughs) cheer for (laughs) and who who to get behind. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I think that that is... Um, one of the things, you know, the SOCI community in the book is is certainly influenced by my experiences, my research, my understanding, my misunderstandings of the Black community. And I think that what makes the Black community is so unique in our celebrations and successes and in our struggles. I, uh, there's just not another community that is going through and living through what we've lived through in terms of, you know, the diaspora and being spread all over the world with, uh, for some of us, no country of origin or connection to that. Um, also being labeled and connected based on the color of our skin and not uh, where we're from or what language we speak. You know, there's just this unique mm-hmm. kind of uh fracturing and also unity within the Black community. And that's what I'm really trying to, what I was really trying to explore on a deeper level with the the Soci characters and the variety of voices there. So yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that people are confused or aren't sure or can't get behind Elamina in all situations, because I think it's it's really hard to do that when you're in that kind of system. Um, you make a choice, mm-hmm. you know, Ida's a good example at the start of the novel. She's in this school and she's working in the system and she's obeying the rules, but she's also kind of resisting in certain small ways. But is she changing the system? Is she, you know, <laughs> making a large difference on a grand scale for every person who comes thereafter? No, she's just trying to figure right. out her own way. And that's, um, I think, a really important thing for people to understand about any kind of system of oppression. Mm-hmm. On that note, this brings up another question that I, I had been thinking about for, for some time. So there's a point later in the book where we learn that Elamina was actually given a different name at birth, and mm-hmm. she was then given a, another name when she was raised by her adoptive mother. Mm-hmm. And due to a number of circumstances, she ends up being referred to by her original name in the latter part of the novel. And I've seen some other readers talk about this as Elamina reclaiming her name and, mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, seizing on it as a point of pride, which, you know, I, I read that and I was like, oh, no, did I did I <laughs> not read the book the way that I was supposed to? Because she always always felt really uncomfortable with that um, in in that latter part of the book. Like she didn't really seem like, you know, she wanted to take on that name. She didn't feel like it felt like it felt like it was hers. And then, you know, she'd have to sort of continually remind herself that, oh no, this is who I am now. I am this person. Mm -hmm. And I wondered, did I, did I read it wrong? If I did, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But if I didn't, and if that was something you were hoping to explore, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, naming's a big one. Um, naming all the names and word choices are, especially in a dystopia, I think are very, uh, have to be very intentional because, you know, when you use words or names that are familiar to people, you call a place, you know, California, people have an association with that. But when you call a place Soci, they have no association with that. And so when you're picking it, you want to be, you know, mindful of that. So there's a couple of things in terms of naming, you know, gutter was a very negative word for a reason. And you you can see how that plays out in the story, whereas Soci is not. It's, it's, it's a beautiful term and meant to be that way. And Mainlander has a certain kind of power built into it. Um, and so so, um, and those are all important choices. And I think with Elamina, it's funny you said that because there was a moment where I read that too, and people were like, you know, she reclaims her 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 name of origin, and I was like, shoot, did I? 
what did I do? (laughs) And I had to go back (laughs) to the manuscript and I was listening to all the references to it. And I was like, I guess I could have been more clear one way or the other. But anyways, for me, I, it was not a reclaiming. It was not like, oh, this is her name and now she's proud to take it on and she wants to carry it. You know, for me, she was doing it um, to hide. Mm-hmm. And um, she was sort of struggling with like, you know, that was her primary goal to take the name um, as a way of hiding. Um, and so uh, it, it's really interesting when people read that because I, I, I think if I had known people would read that, I think I probably would have made that more clear. Like I would have put a line in there that said, you know, she does not care about this name. (laughs) You know, just like a really clear, just one liner so that like you could always go back to that and know for sure. Because um, I, I think I'm uncomfortable with giving people more credit than they're demonstrating in the story. And I don't think, um, I think Elamina, I love her. She's a great character, obviously. Uh, but uh, I don't think she she's the type to be at that point in her journey to be like, mm-hmm. this is me and this is who I am. And I, I want to embrace my roots. Um, it's really interesting. Actually, I was having a conversation about, about name changes. And I think with women, especially when you, in, in our culture, in Ontario in particular, when you get married, you're supposed to take your partner's name. That was like the old school way that many of us still stick to and just have long discussions about what it's like to change your name and when people um, do that and what the sort of the consequences and ramifications are and I think it's really interesting because it's one of the challenges of being renamed or being named in a colonized country or colonized space um, Mm -hmm. is that you have to reconcile with who named you and why who who changed your name and why and also who you were with that name that you've used most of your life um because it's not as easy as just being like i'm gonna be true to my ancestors and go by my original name um you then have to go through the effort of changing and then occupying a new name and that's that's an effort so for me elamina is elamina um and uh the, the point in which her name changes is just uh uh a tactic. <laughs> and uh, that's how, sort of how I saw it. But I, I appreciate that people have seen her as, as a uh, brave character that that's doing that. But, but I, that's not what I had seen when I wrote it. <laughs> mm. I think it's always such an interesting, magical part of the, the writing process, right? Is you spend all this time with a book and you have this very intimate relationship to it. And then you put it out into the world and suddenly readers have this very intimate relationship to it and they take different things from it that maybe yeah. you did intend or maybe didn't intend. And it's always interesting to me to, to see what resonates and what doesn't and what people pick up from it. And so this is one of the things that surprised you perhaps uh, in having the book out in the world and having reader responses to it. But what was something that surprised you in the writing of it? Mm. Well, I did not realize, well, uh, how do I say this without, I, I, it's fine, I might spoil it for somebody, but you'll be fine. Um, I, I had always, I, I believe in neat endings. I had always believed in very complete stories. You know, if someone's going to read a book, when they get to the end, it should, it should satisfy them. <laughs> it, should, <laughs> it should fill them. <laughs> they should be okay moving on to the next mm. book. You and I have and different opinions. I know, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. And I know some of my friends are like, no, 
uh, I don't have to do that for people. And I'm like, Ugh. uh, so I had always had an epilogue actually at the end of the book. And mm-hmm. I think writing this and ending this book in 2020 really changed the way the book ended. Um, I felt like I was not a ready or be obligated to give a complete wrapped up ending. And so I think the ending is still satisfying, I hope. <laughs> but I just, it just wasn't the it ending. It's just, it just wasn't the ending I had planned. It wasn't the mm-hmm. ending I would, I don't know if it's the ending I would want as a reader. I think I would, I think I'd be okay with it. I think what would happen for me is I would be angry but then I would need to think about it. And in the thinking about it, I would come up with really interesting things about why I was angry. And I would have to think about, you know, where, what in my life made me want that kind of ending. Um, So I think it's an ending that would have made me think angrily perhaps, but still think. And that's ultimately a really satisfying way for me to end a book. I realized um, is to allow people to think and reflect and to, um, to reconstruct, you know, you mentioned that fairy tale ending, the ways that we're always sort of inclined to have these, <laughs> these wrapped up, neat in a bow, uh, they live happily ever after kind of um, stories. And I think uh, I learned in writing this book that some stories just um, shouldn't do that, um, mm. that it's actually perhaps harmful on a larger mm-hmm. scale to do mm-hmm. that. Um, well, I think yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I, w- I was just gonna say, I think we were in a very incomplete stage of life when the book was being done. And there was a lot of similarities. And I, I think, I think where it ends is exactly where it's supposed to end. And I'm really happy with that. But I would not have thought that at the beginning. Mm, I love that. Mm. I think you're right. Because there is that sense because the world can be so terrible and so hard to comprehend sometimes, especially yeah. in terms of what people do to one another. There's this, this real desire to simplify it, especially in narrative to, you know, give ourselves some solace in the form of stories where things do work out in some way, shape or form, where things do make sense, where they tie up neatly with a bow. And I think the other approach to that is to write stories that don't have either happy endings or any sort of, you know, defined endings at all, because they engage with that difficulty in a different way, which I think is also, you know, can be really important for, for learning. Um, and also just, you know, for the sense of stories as things that continue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was also, I, I, I don't feel, the question I had sought to, to explore in the book was what happens, like, essentially, like, how do systems work and how do we approach systems that are failing us um and I don't think I got to an answer at the end so I think the ending is satisfying because I'm I'm not satisfied so you know it it doesn't give people something that they can say the moral of the story is x because um Mm -hmm. the story is still playing itself out for me Is it playing itself out for you in ways that we might as readers perhaps (laughs) return to one day? I think so. I think so. (laughs) And what's funny is working on that, working on a, on a sequel, I I'm still, I still have to think about the ending. I still have to think about, you know, I, I ultimately believe there is only one more book coming. And so this book, I feel even more pressed to be like, well, what do I do? Cause I think in some ways I kind of knew when I finished Gutter Child that, I would follow it up with something else. Mm. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> it, it makes me think. So 
the writer Sheila Hetty has talked before about how the process of writing a book or writing, working on a particular project is essentially the changes that you as a person go through in order to become the person that you need to be to write that particular story, right? Mm-hmm. And you talked, you've talked before about how it took a comparatively long time for you to write the story of Gutter Child. And then now you're working on this sequel as well. And I'm curious as to, you know, what are some of the things that changed about you in the course of writing Gutter Child? Mm-hmm. And then looking at the new book from that vantage point, do you think there are things changes that are happening even now as you're writing the second book? Oof. Um, I mean, so I wrote Gutter Child in eight years and there were two moments that I can think of very, well, three, but I'll talk about two, uh, that <laughs> happened very distinctly. Um, one was kind of a crisis of faith where I was kind of, you know, I had been part of a church community and a faith community for a long time. And I started to see signs of, you know, racism and, other things going on in the church. And I, I tried to confront them and it didn't go well. (laughs) And so it was really quite traumatic for me um, on a number of levels, both like confronting it, but also not being heard and then leaving and feeling kind of alone in that. And so that was like a big, big thing. And it it shaped other things like um, in my life, but it kind of was central. And so there was a storyline in the book that actually emerged in that process, because I thought one of the things was missing was how in the Black community in particular, faith has played a particular kind of role in making us or encouraging us to be passive, encouraging us to take a passive uh, approach to activism. So, you know, pray about it or, you know, hope for it, but don't, don't march for it. Don't get angry. Don't speak loudly, you know, sort of be quiet in your, in your desire for change. And that was the big thing. So I actually added a whole storyline on, you know, the healers and different things that were happening in the book, because I wanted to push at this notion that we should just, we, we can passively help people. We can give them, you know, a pamphlet or a brochure or this instead of actually marching with them and doing work with them. Um, and so that was a thing. And then I think last year's, um, the BLM, uh, Black Lives Matter sort of peaking. I don't think it was new in 2020, but I think it reached a particular kind of peak um, really changed me. And so much so that I was like getting angry in the last stages of the book. Cause I was like, I don't know how to write, finish this book when so much mm-hmm. of my worldview is, is actively changing in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was when the epilogue came out. Cause I just thought, screw, screw it. This is what <laughs> happens to people. Um, and the whole last chapter, um, really changed, um, the premise around arriving at the last chapter, um, really changed in light of what I was seeing going on around me. Um, I won't say much, but there's a picture that becomes important in in the book. And it was really influenced by what I saw happening also with the Syrian refugee crisis and the, the boy on the beach and this idea that we, we will pay attention, but only for a moment or only for one group or one person um, that was really sort of playing itself out in my life. And so, yeah, those things changed me and were changing me and kept changing the book, which is why I was like, I need to submit this book now because I can't, <laughs> I can't hold any more change in these pages. Um, and uh, I think in writing the sequel, 
what's been really tricky, or I think I'm kind of rushing <laughs> because I'm like, I don't want to change too much. I don't want to change mm-hmm. too much to make this more complicated, to be honest. <laughs> I just, I just want the change that's in me now to hit the book and not have anything new uh, evolve. Um, and so I think there's now a bit of a rush, not a rush, but like there's a sense, the longer you take, the more changes you're going to have to make because the, you're going to be a different person four years yeah. from now, six years from now, eight years from now, but two years from now, you might be okay. <laughs> <laughs> mm. So we're coming close to the end now. And I just had one more question for you, really. One of the things, I mean, there's so many things that are powerful about Gutter Child. And again, listeners, if you haven't picked up a copy of this book, you need to get it now. You need to imbibe it in whatever way you get your books. Um, so much of the power in Gutter Child about resistance and around the small ways that we make resistance lies in the power of community mm-hmm. and the community that Elamina finds both, you know, when she's a child and then when she's at the school and then when she's in the gutter as well. And you make reference throughout the book to the poetry of Langston Hughes. And I know you've talked about Toni Morrison in other interviews that you've done about the book and the influence that those writers have had on you. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit just about some of the other influences that you keep coming back to your sort of writing community that has Mm -hmm. helped you and sustained you as you go through and go forth and and continue to tell stories? Yes. I mean, I think community um, is probably one of the biggest influencers of this story. Um, Because I think Elamina is a single character who, who tells the story and moves through it. But I think all the things that happen around her and all the people that come alongside her are really symbolic of, you know, a, how the Black community works, period, <laughs> and B, how how I've come to find my way in the world uh, through the Black community in particular. Um, and so community is key, um, and the, the work of Langston Hughes and Toni Morrison, as you mentioned, in, in particular in the book, Langston Hughes becomes this, this catalyst for what they begin to understand about themselves and how they begin to see themselves in the world. Um, for me, I realized in writing this that I actually didn't have a lot of Black women in my life as a young woman, and that a lot of the questions and the confusions that I had are are really likely traced to, to that. Um, and so what's been interesting and as a writer is to have women, Black women my age, Black women who, who are older as well, sort of shape the ways that I tell stories and the things I think about. Um, in the acknowledgments, I talk about a few of those women, um, Bianca Spence and Kinesia Lubrin and Leonie Gavalsius and Jay Pitter. Um, and I hope I didn't miss anybody. But but I, <laughs> but I what's interesting is I had lunches and, you know, ride homes, like got in a car with uh, Leonica once. And, you know, I, I had these moments with all of those women that were sometimes planned, sometimes not, where we talked about the book, but sometimes not where something they said dramatically shaped my confidence in the story or a particular plot change or turnaround in the story. And they don't know it. They probably wouldn't be able to trace it to their conversation, but that is what community is, right? You go to Mm -hmm. them, you talk to your elders, you talk to your peers, you share what you're struggling through. They share how they see those things. And suddenly the world shifts a little to the right or to the left or, or pushes forward. 
or, or pauses sometimes and just makes you reconsider things. And that's what happened in, in writing the book. And I think, you know, Josephine, Violet, Tilly, Isabel, um, uh, Ida, you know, all these characters, Lula Bell, Duncan, these characters mm-hmm. are so informed by people I know. Um, the wisdom that they share, the things that we differ on, the ways we approach things similarly, but also different. Um, it's just a, a real, anyone who gets something great from the book um, in terms of community or who takes something away from those characters and how they relate to one another um, is essentially like seeing a window into my lunch meetings. <laughs> They're wonderful lunch meetings. Everybody. <laughs> they really, they are. really are fantastic. They really are. Yeah, but it, it, it speaks to the importance of being exposed to members of your community at an early age and the importance of, you know, I did not have a Black teacher. I did not study Black literature, um, a permanent teacher until I was in university. I had a substitute teacher who I still am close with. <laughs> the only Black teacher I had uh, was a substitute teacher. Um, and uh, it's just that importance, that connection, that ability to, to look at your life and the questions of your life and say, oh, I wonder what so-and-so would say about that because they probably have gone through something similar. Um, it's just such an important thing. And it's, it's why I push so hard for reading um, books outside of your community, your experience, but also for marginalized folks within your community, uh, because I think it's really important to be given the words, the access, the language, the space to think these things through at an early point so that um, you're, you're whole, you're more, you're more whole. Mm-hmm. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Everything that you say is always so beautiful. <laughs> just continually in awe. So I lied. I have one more question. That was my second to last question. Um, and this is one that you've probably gotten before. Uh, and we talked a little bit about it when you were talking about the book that may or may not be the sequel to Gutter Child. But what is next for you now that you have this novel out? And I mean, obviously, you're still working at The Fold, but you know, you've got other projects and other things that you're thinking about. And I wondered if you could give everyone just a little taste of other things that are maybe coming down the pipeline. You know, I mean, Fold is my is my baby. It's my child. And uh, so that's happening always. It's always on my mind. Um, and then what are the, the dates of the newest festival? Oh, the, you, the newest you... festival, Amanda, you might like to know. Are, uh, yes, May- I would love to hear it. <laughs> May 1st to the 15th. And we have this amazing virtual space. It's going to be so fun. Um, so I'm excited for, for registration to open for that March 25th. Um, and then, yeah, the sequel. And those are really the only two things I can confidently speak to uh, on my horizon. I have a podcast I'm supposed to be doing, but you know, oh, that's I'm, I'm really far more obsessed with the book. I've actually yesterday was like wanted to put a post-it message in my book and to say, Hey characters, I can't talk to you right now, but like, don't go anywhere. <laughs> you, know? you know, when you tell mm. someone like you've got to go yes. down the street, but you want them to be exactly where you leave them when you get yes. back. That's how I felt yesterday. I was like, I'm going to be really busy this week, but I don't want you to go anywhere. I'm going to come back, I promise. So uh, I'm really enjoying working on the sequel, actually. It's been a really great. That's amazing. And I'm sure that readers everywhere are thrilling to hear those words right now. I know I am. I know I can't <laughs> wait to get my hands on the sequel. I, so I, try I can not only to imagine think... how everyone else feels. Well, it's funny. I try not to think about other people because as I'm writing it, sometimes I'm like, I don't think people will be very happy about this, but <laughs> 
who cares? You know, so um, I'm really very much learning to write from the voice that comes inside me and not for the voices that live outside. Um, Mm. And that's, uh, you know, probably a takeaway I'll take from this next book. Yeah, I think it's a good takeaway for all writers, really. It's writing for that voice on the inside. So thank you for that jewel of wisdom in and amongst (laughs) the many jewels of wisdom that you have given the podcast today. Uh, I just want to say again, JL, thank you so much uh, for coming in to speak um, for the Ottawa Writers Festival podcast. Um, Thank you so much for writing such a wonderful book. I know I speak for so many readers out there that it really is such a pivotal, important read. And if you haven't had a chance to pick it up yet, I really recommend that you do. Thank you again, JL, for being here. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you in this in this format outside of our usual, you know, know. work meetings and, and get togethers. Well, it's very lucky for me. I, uh, I really appreciate it. I respect your work immensely, Amanda, not just with Fold, but uh, I think Centaur's wife, um, it's just, I said it before, I think is a really brave book. Um, and so I'm really, I'm really excited that you're, you're also uh, talking and, and getting a chance to share your story with other people too. Oh, well, that's so lovely of you. And this is why you need to buy her book, people, because she is one of the loveliest people that you will ever, ever come across in Canadian literature. That was Amanda LeDuc, author of The Centaur's Wife, in conversation with her friend and colleague, J.L. Richardson, about her new bestseller, Gutter Child. If you want to spend more time with them, visit thefoldcanada.org and check out their amazing festival, virtual for another year. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books, including Gutter Child and The Centaur's Wife. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. I want to thank the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.